Yeah, good morning. If you would, uh, turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Sorry, I didn't give you a chance to respond. Good morning. If you would, please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. We're going to be reading from verse 24 through the end of the chapter today. And uh, I'd like to read it one time all the way through, um, right off the bat, so that we have context. So if you've not found it yet in your Bible, I'll give you just a few more seconds to do that, and then we'll begin. Starting at Acts 18.24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Bow with me, please. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that each person here will leave here with something new, some new information that transforms them in some way, in some aspect of their life, God. I pray that your word speaks to us powerfully today and that your Holy Spirit interprets to our hearts so that we're able to receive what you have. I pray that it affects us from the youngest person here to the oldest, that it affects every one of us, that we might walk in a way that's more worthy of you. We want to bring you glory and we want to show you honor. And we love you, Lord, because you loved us first. Help us to remember that. And let the things that we hear take root and bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as the kids are finding the hidden pictures here, um, I'd like to quickly explain what we're going to be doing with this passage. Um, to be blunt, there, there's an awful lot in this text. I mean, a lot in this text. And, and there's probably thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of sermons have been preached over the years from this passage, and certainly there's been a lot of variety in the messages. Um, and a pastor's job, you probably know this, but just in case you don't, a pastor's job is not just to, to try to get the sense of the text, but it's to emphasize what he believes God is leading him to address for the congregation. And so the question is, what is it that's in this text that, that the church needs to hear the most, that this church needs to hear the most. And as it is, there's a lot of, of interesting rabbit trails that we could go down. Uh, when I used to sit in my dad's class, um, one of many classes that he taught at Dallas Christian College, there'd be times where I'd go, and that was a way of saying, we're rabbit trailing, and it became like a little code, because um, he, he's a lot like me, except smarter and uh, much older. But anyway... Um, there's a few that we might go down rabbit trails-wise, but I, I think what I've been led to share with you this morning is contained in the title, which I really hope to flesh out for you uh, as we go along. But uh, there, there's a lot of nifty stuff, though, that's kind of tucked away in this passage, and there's, there's extra things that I think we can apply to our own context, so, so don't want to go too fast, okay? But if you're ready, we're going to return to verse 24. There, there's an important character that's being introduced here. This is a guy named Apollos. And if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, you may remember that Paul refers to Apollos. He says, this is the man who watered the seeds that Paul planted. He's obviously referring to spiritual seeds. Um, and so he, uh, 
he shows up for the first time in the New Testament right here. Okay? So Luke writes, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. So, so this Apollos guy, he, he's, it's a very Greek name, but he's actually a Jew. And he was born in Alexandria, which was a city by the sea in northern Egypt. And he came to Ephesus, which, which you may recall was where Paul uh, had gone. And his friends Priscilla and Aquila had been left there as Paul moved on to some other places to preach the gospel. And so what we learn about Apollos here is kind of interesting uh, because we see he has been given some significant gifting by the Lord in the area of speaking. Okay, Luke says that Apollos was an eloquent man. Not the elephant man. An eloquent man. And a, good, uh, a definition of eloquent might be very capable with words. Okay, So in this room, how many of you, raise your hand if you feel that you are considerably, at least fairly eloquent? Two of us? Okay, uh, I certainly think a few of you are, um, but it doesn't seem to be a very common gifting, and because, because of that, I want to say that the very first uh, of some of the observations about this text is that not every Christian is naturally eloquent, okay? And I'm putting, I'm putting natural in air quotes because every good and perfect gift is from the Father of lights, right? James, what, 117, I think it is? Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of heavenly lights. So one could argue every capability that we have to some extent is a gift of the Spirit. Now, this statement, though, that not every Christian is eloquent, that's not supposed to discourage anybody, but simply to say not everyone is going to be an Apollos. Okay, Not every person has the same gifting in any area. And public speaking is one of those. However, that doesn't mean you shouldn't try it if given the opportunity. We did this with our sister Sharon a couple of weeks ago, um, gave her an opportunity to stand up front, and she did a great job. Um, and you can always do like me and write a manuscript first if you're not uh, super eloquent off the cuff. Um, and it, it usually keeps me, usually <laughs> keeps me from embarrassing myself, not always. Um, but the point is that not every Christian is eloquent, and some people tend to freeze up or, or to struggle when, you know, to think fast on their feet, and that's fine. You need to know that. That's okay. Apollos was kind of unique, uh, and, and so his gifting was unique, and blah, blah, was unique enough. I'm obviously not eloquent. Great uh, he was, his gifting was unique enough that Luke felt like writing it, like specifically mentioning it, okay? And comparatively few people are called to, to pulpit ministry, perhaps even fewer to street preaching, which is what Apollos was doing. Um, I don't know if he had any notes, but he certainly didn't have a tablet, that he was able to, well, he may have had a tablet, but he, he didn't have an electronic tablet that he was able to, to read a manuscript off of. Um, however, uh, the next descriptor is the one that I want to encourage everyone to hone in on, okay? It says that Apollos was competent in the Scriptures. Apollos was competent in the scriptures. Friends, not everyone is going to be a public speaker, but any Christian with the indwelling Holy Spirit and access to the Bible can be competent in the scriptures. Anyone. Now, I understand that those of you with a full-time job certainly don't have, you know, the amount of time available for study that a person whose job partially consists of studying and conveying the word has. Okay, I understand that. 
That is a given, all right? But literally, anyone who can read can read the Bible. We can read the Bible through in a year with just a few minutes every day, and I highly encourage you to read through the entire Bible once every year. I know that sounds like a lot. It only takes you 15 to 30 minutes, depending on how fast you read, to read through the entire Bible once a year, 15, 30 minutes a day, excuse me. Let's clarify that. So it's like, here we go. No, um, it, it, but, but it can be done. In fact, I, I have learned from personal experience, okay, if you have a weekend with nothing planned and you can get alone, it is possible to read through the entire New Testament in less than 24 hours, okay? I know this because I've done it. And I'm not, it's just, I slept in the middle, okay? But it's, it's possible. You can do this. We think we can't. We think it's an insurmountable goal. It's not. I just, I want to encourage everyone, if you're willing to set aside the time, which you need to be, you can read the Word of God. And if you're teaching somebody else, you definitely need to be reading the Word of God. One of the great things about reading through the Bible in a systematic way is that you notice themes. You see how certain books complement one another. And what's, what's, Really, I think, interesting to consider here, though, is that Apollos was actually competent in the scriptures that they had at the time, which is what we exclusively think of as the New Testament. I mean, excuse me, the Old Testament. That's what they had. They didn't have the New Testament. They were living it. (laughs) And yet he had received teaching that showed him how the Old Testament had perfectly prepared God's people for the coming Messiah, for the, the coming Jesus Christ as their Savior. So a further point to competency being attainable by any Christian with access to the Bible is that instrumental to this competency is instruction in the way of the Lord. It's a good thing to find someone who's more well-versed than you are in God's Word to help you gain understanding of the history and the context and the meaning of the Scriptures so that you can be competent. Now, what is the number one way to do that? It's to be a part of an active Bible study with another Christian or group of Christians, some of whom have been walking in the way longer than you have, and they've had more opportunity, perhaps, to study and learn. And this is important. A person in whose life you see fruit of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to tell you this. Being in a church service is incredibly valuable, okay? But being in a Bible study where you can ask questions where you can uh, write down notes and approach later and say, hey, what about this? That is a powerful tool. Don't, don't skip it. That's one of the reasons that Wednesday night is so great, is we have studies in the Word of God. We have a men's group, we have a women's group, and we have, a, we have a, basically a middle school group with a, a couple of high schoolers there. Um, and Joel kind of just goes between. He's like, I feel like a kid today. I feel like a man tonight. Whichever one it is, he just he goes to whichever group. And that's fine. But the, this is a way that we learn the Word of God. We become competent by being instructed. Just reading it usually isn't enough because we'll have questions. That's why God gives us to each other. That's one of the many reasons. We'll talk about that later. Um, I really would uh, advise that you be sure to see good fruit in a person before listening to them 
uh, you know, if they claim they can help you grow in your understanding of the word, make sure that they have an understanding of the word. It will be exemplified in their life if they do, okay? That's also why it's important if you're listening to pastors online um, that you don't know personally, be willing to do some research on those pastors and see if there's, uh, if there's any credible outstanding accusations against them or their ministry. Uh, but whatever the case, I, I want to impress on each one of you that, that not being a public speaker or a scholar is no excuse to avoid studying or to, uh, to not become conversant in the Word of God. We should all be able to do this and not just be able to. We all should do this. As His children, Christians ought to love the Word. Right? Okay. His Spirit within us should predispose us to enjoying His Word, and we should find things in it that speak to us. All right, uh, let's read on. And being fervent in spirit. I, I forgot to fade in the, the slides, didn't I, this time? Because I noticed there's a blank screen in between. I apologize, folks. That's my bad. I didn't do that right. Uh, being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. I want you to pause there for a moment. Okay, what was the baptism of John? Anybody? Repentance. Yes, it was a baptism by immersion in water, which is what baptism means, of repentance into the remission of sins. Okay? And to say that he only knew the baptism of John likely means he had not been present for the full command of the risen Christ to baptize people into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And nor was he apparently present for Pentecost, where Peter specifically, uh, you know, admonished everyone. He says, be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ into the remission of sins. But apparently, though, he had been baptized in the baptism of John and was still preaching the gospel, which we're going to get into shortly. Uh, but because of this, this is... Kind of strange to me, honestly, but, but there is some debate among scholars as to whether Apollos was saved or whether he was still unsaved because he'd not yet been baptized in the biblical way, which is by immersion as a believer in Jesus. And I think this is probably an important question to some, but in my opinion, it's probably missing the point. Apollos was preaching the things concerning Jesus with all sincerity and against opposition and doing it accurately, which implies to me that perhaps he had the Holy Spirit at work in him. Does that make sense? Okay, but let's keep reading. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I actually looked up that word because I was concern, I was, what does more accurately mean? And, and that's precisely what it means. It means more, more perfectly, more accurately. So for this passage, I have some more observations to consider. And the first is that being fervent in spirit isn't just for public speaking wunderkinds like Apollos, okay? According to Romans 12, 11, it's for everybody. Everybody is supposed to be fervent in spirit. Okay? We actually looked at this last week. I don't know if you remember that, but Paul commands the Roman church not to be slothful in zeal. Okay, in other words, don't be a lazy slacker about spiritual things, right? He says, be fervent in spirit. It's, a, it's a, an exchange. Exchange being lazy spiritually for being fervent spiritually, zealous, excited, passionate about the things of God. 
Be excited about the Lord and His Word and the salvation that He has shed His blood to provide for you. And next, Luke says that Apollos accurately preached the things concerning Jesus. And we're going to look at, into what that would be. Okay? Since he was preaching out of a, a basis of Old Testament Scripture, we can assume that he was probably using Old Testament Scripture to accurately preach the things of Jesus. For example, Psalm chapter 2 talks about his Christhood. And by that I mean Jesus, his deity and the holy anointing that was on him, which made him the Messiah, the Mashiach, that the Jews have been waiting for. Um, here's some excerpts from Psalm 2, and you might want to write that down in your notes. I, I think at the bottom of the, uh, the bulletin insert, I, I didn't have the scriptures picked out yet that I was going to use by the time I turned it in, so I just said, you know what, I'm just going to tell them to you. You can write this down. You're big boys and girls. Psalm chapter 2. Okay, write that down. Why do the nations rage? This, this is excerpts. It's not reading it straight through. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Interesting dichotomy there. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. You can certainly see how the Messiah, the, the anointed Messiah, that's what the word means, is described in this passage as a son of God. And I think it's quite likely that Apollos would probably also draw attention to the sinlessness of Jesus by reading from Isaiah 53, some of which we read earlier this morning, which says, he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. You know, that same passage contains some incredibly powerful words about his atoning death to pay for our sins. Here's some excerpts from Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon us the iniquity, excuse me, laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. That is one of the most mysterious, powerful, amazing statements in the Bible. It was the will of the Lord to crush him because God hates sin. And remember what Scripture says, in that moment, Jesus became sin so that we might become what? The righteousness of God. We sang about it this morning. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. He bore the sin of many and makes, that's present tense, makes intercession for the transgressors. You know, even without a full and complete understanding of what God had instructed believers to do, Apollos apparently grasped the concept that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he died for the sins of others. And he also likely preached about his resurrection, which was according to God's foreordination. You know, it's, it's expressed in Psalm 16. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, 
land of the dead, hell, whatever you, you want to refer to, Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. And it truly is amazing when we consider these, these early apostles didn't have the New Testament, and yet they're still able to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ through the Old Testament. The example was set by Jesus himself, who, who after the resurrection, told his, his disciples everything about himself that was contained in the scriptures. You remember it happened in the walk to Emmaus? Um, there's a place, the Bible tells us he opened their eyes to the scriptures. You know, I think Jesus did the same thing to Apollos in order for him to be able to expound so accurately, so perfectly on the things concerning Jesus. But thanks to the interference, or, or, or perhaps we should say the intercession of Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos was taught the way more accurately. This passage indicates that the way of God includes proper baptism. Now, for anyone who's new to the idea of biblical baptism versus traditional baptism, I want to give a very quick introduction, and I'm going to direct you. If you have any more questions about it, I got a previous um, message from Acts chapter 2, way back there. Uh, that was like two years ago, wasn't it? That was a long time ago. Um, but uh, where we, we talk more about what baptism is and what it does and all that. But um, if you're interested, I'll, I'll give you that, that sermon. But in the New Testament, baptism was always done by immersion meaning to, to fully submerge a person in water, and it was only applied to those who were old enough to believe and to publicly profess their faith. There's no evidence in Scripture at all that baptism was ever applied by sprinkling or pouring. In fact, the literal word baptizo in Greek means to fully submerge or wash, okay? There's also no evidence it was ever applied to a person who was too young to have their own faith in Jesus Christ, but rather it was only provided for those who believed and were able to express that belief. But somewhere in the second century, you know, human beings were pragmatic people, right? We're like, you know what, it's, it's winter. It's really cold. We don't want to cause hypothermia, so let's do it this way. Or, um, you know, for a time, they would only baptize in flowing water of a river. Uh, but, but men's ideas begin to kind of infiltrate the church about how and when to baptize. And in many cultures, um, those things became enshrined as traditions. But they're not biblical, Okay. Biblical baptism is immersion of believers, and that is not to condemn anyone else. Just want to explain. I want to make sure everybody understands that this is merely, this is to clarify what the Bible teaches. So bear that in mind. God knows the heart, okay? We don't know the heart. But at Crossroad, we only practice biblical baptism, and the reason that we do that is because we want to be faithful to the Lord and His Word. And uh, I went off the subject a bit. I know that, but it's important. But now we're going to look together at some really cool things that are contained in the undercurrent of the story, okay? First of all, this story shows that faithfulness doesn't require perfect understanding. I'm going to say that again. For those of you at home, faithfulness doesn't require perfect understanding. And I'm convinced the reason a lot of very sincere Christians are scared to talk about Jesus with their friends and their family, is they're afraid they're going to say something wrong. You ever heard that? I've heard it a lot from some folks in this room probably, right? We're afraid that we're going to say the wrong thing. And I'm also convinced there are other sincere Christians who think that some of their fellow believers aren't really saved, you know, just because they might not have 
what they consider to be a perfect understanding of the Christian faith. And I hope to shoot some really big holes in both of those theories right now, okay? First of all, you don't have to have a perfect understanding of the Bible to talk about it or a perfect understanding of Christ to talk about him, okay? I know my wife, Shannon, pretty well, all right? I met her when she was 13, believe it or not, and then was like, oh, you're 13? Never mind. We didn't date till she was 18. I just want to say that. But anyway, that's why she looks so much younger than me. Um, but I, I knew her pretty well, right? But not that well. And I knew her a whole lot better after we got married. You know, now it's been uh, 23 years and change. And I know her a lot better now than I did at the beginning. But I didn't know her that well at the beginning, and yet I didn't wait until we'd been married a year or 10 years or 20 years before I started introducing her to people. That would be silly, wouldn't it? Now, why is that? Be, you know, I don't have a perfect understanding of my wife even now. <laughs> you know? Right? If you perfectly understand your spouse, raise your hand. That's what I thought. Okay, so I don't have a perfect understanding in order to, I don't have to, to introduce her to someone else. Because she is eminently capable of going from that introduction and helping that person get to know her. And guess what? So is God. So is God. You realize he's alive, right? He introduces himself to people too. And when you introduce him to someone, guess what? He can take that introduction somewhere. He doesn't need you to be able to give every single aspect of, of, of his character. He can reveal that. He's really good at that, in fact. He does it with this. God doesn't need you or me to know him perfectly in order to introduce him to someone else. He is a real person in a far greater sense than we are, and he can show who he is through his word and through his spirit. Okay, We're called to be faithful in living for Christ and faithful in sharing him whenever he opens that door. But listen, guys, you need to understand this. Our frailties are not bad enough to prevent God from accomplishing what he wants to through us. Do you understand that? He himself said, no one can thwart me. I like that word, thwart. No one can thwart God. He can accomplish what he is going to accomplish. So don't think you need to know everything exactly right in order to tell people about him. Secondly, I want you to look around you, and I want you to really do this. Look to your right, look to your left. Come on, just, just do that for me. Look to your right, look to your left, okay? Those of you that are way over there, if you look to your right, you won't see anything. That's okay. See a blank wall. The person next to you, I want you to hear me on this, does not have, I don't care if it's your spouse, they do not have the exact same understanding of God that you have. Nor do they have the exact same experience of God that you've had. Nor is their walk precisely identical to yours. And if they are a true Christian, and if you are a true Christian, then what you both do have is the understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he lived a sinless life and he died to pay for our sins and he rose from the dead, and then his Holy Spirit has taken up residence in them and ending you, and you'll be together in heaven. Do you believe that? I mean, do you understand that? 
It's not about, at least not as much about, what you know as it is about who you know. Do you know Jesus Christ? And just as importantly, does he know you? Because we know what Jesus says to the people that he never knew. So remember that faithfulness does not equate to perfectioning your theology, okay? I have a feeling that Satan has a pretty good grasp of doctrine. Your true allegiance to Jesus is going to show up in whether you trust and obey. That's it. That's going to be where we know the real allegiance is. Does the person trust and obey? Anyway, moving on. Um, This passage also shows the importance of gentle correction. Gentle. It's in all caps. Both giving and receiving it. I, I love how Aquila and Priscilla, it says they heard him, and then they took him aside, it says, and taught him the way of God more accurately. They explained it. Now, once you notice here, they didn't just ignore him, right, which was important because he, he's a gifted teacher. He's striving to make Christ known to others. But likewise, they didn't publicly shame him for not having all of his doctrinal ducks in a row, right? Instead, they it says they took him aside. Some, some commentaries think that means they actually took him into their home in order to help him understand the way of God more accurately. And guys, that is a fantastic example for us. I, I think the church generally tends to swing to either one extreme or the other when it comes to correction. Way too often, and way, the vast majority of those instances, we just ignore something, such as false teaching that needs to be addressed. Or we, we might go the other way and go overboard in condemning the teacher that might be very sincerely trying to serve the Lord by sharing his message, and they simply don't have a fully accurate understanding or what we believe is a fully accurate understanding in some area of doctrine. So I think this is a magnificent model to follow, honestly, um, to try to gently approach someone who is in error and then help them comprehend God's way more accurately. Uh, But likewise, it's very important for the person being approached to be receptive. you got to be willing to receive correction, friends, all of us. If you're perfect and you know it, raise your hand, (laughs) right? We all need correction. In fact, I'm of the opinion that a person who is not willing to receive correction is pretty well useless as a Christian, let alone a teacher. You know, God knows the heart, but until a person is willing to listen, they're going to be totally ineffective in their Christian walk. And as a guy who makes a lot of mistakes, I have learned to be open to all correction, not even, not even all gentle correction. <laughs> I'm open to not so gentle correction because it often contains truth that I need to hear. It doesn't give you an excuse, folks. I'm <laughs> just saying. <laughs> don't come to me later. Mark, since you said, you know, don't do that, okay? <laughs> um, but if we're not able to receive correction from those who are more mature in the faith than we are, and even sometimes those who are less mature in the faith than we are, then we run the risk of being the swine that they're going to refuse to cast their pearls in front of. Does that make sense? 
I hope that makes sense. Anyway, so it's, it's very important to be willing to receive correction and to bestow it on those willing to listen. Sometimes you, you may bestow it on someone who's not willing to listen. Then you have to decide, is this worth it? And that's where you go to the, the whole Pauline, do I knock the dust off my, my sandals? But that's also another sermon. Anyway, it's very important to do this. Uh, one other cool thing about this passage, I'm sorry, I got to jump in here, um, is that it was two people approaching one person in a very non-threatening way. And I think sometimes that gives a little more credibility um, to, to an approach. It also says to me the fact that marital teamwork can be really effective when it comes to mentoring. You know, one thing that, uh, that is truly beautiful to see in the church is when couples that are mature in the faith and often mature in years, when they reach out and adopt younger couples or even singles and, and, and kind of help them grow in the faith, people who aren't as far along, and I don't think this is supposed to be a rarity. I think this is supposed to be common practice in the church. We should see this a lot. You know, most married couples that, that I've known who've been maturing in the faith for a while, they also have a much fuller picture of the Christian faith than individuals do because typically they have strengths that complement each other. So um, let, let me put the statement together with the previous point. It is extremely important. I'm going to say it's vital in the survival of the church, the Christian church in general, that people learn to mentor one another. You know, each believer should have someone less mature in the faith that they're helping to grow and someone more mature in the faith that they're looking up to for guidance. And this is really, I think it's kind of a no-brainer, guys. Like, this should be really obvious because Christianity is something that is more caught than taught. It really is. It takes both. Don't get me wrong. I saw that look. Chris, I love, I love watching Chris when I preach. He is so transparent, and he nods. He's like, yeah, but he'll go, hmm. And you can kind of smell the rubber burning as he's, oh, it's great. I love it. Um, yeah, just thinking. <laughs> uh, but we all, you know, both are important, but it has to be caught. You can't just teach it and not live it, or it won't be received in the same way. Uh, older ladies in the church, you, you ladies, and older men in the church, I, I hope you're already either mentoring some individual in the faith or else, or you have someone in mind to mentor if you're not yet. Uh, couples, I hope you are always, you know, looking around for other couples to engage with, and I hope that you're frequently reaching out and sharing your life and sharing your home with at least one other couple or a single person in the church to help draw them closer to Christ. This is what we're supposed to be doing. As a church. And I'm going to venture a guess to say it's not happening that often. But I look around this room and I see some very wonderful Christian people who have a lot to offer and a lot of life to experience to share with someone else. So I hope you'll, you'll do this. You'll consider this. You know, we're supposed to be one large extended family of God. And we're supposed to be raising one another in the faith. It's biblical. It needs, to be, it needs to be common. And if you're fairly new to, to walking in the way of God and you recognize that you could use some guidance, uh, then praise God that you see that. That's a sign of maturity. And I, and I want to challenge you, find someone else in this body that you can reach out to and say, I need to grow. If no one's come to you, but you're like, I need to grow, go find them. There's folks in this church that would love to have you reach out. 
Anyway, all that said, I, I, I do want to point out that this passage also reminds us that the way of God should be taught as accurately as possible, okay? I want, to, I want to make sure we understand that because earlier when I said you don't have to have everything perfect, that's absolutely true, but it's best to get it as, well, as right as you can. It needs to be taught, as well, especially as a teacher. You know, James 3.1 says, not many of us should be teachers, my brothers, because we know that teachers will be judged more harshly. That's a scary thought. I want to make sure I get this as right as I can. Christianity is not an anything-goes religion. I was listening to someone that was, uh, it was the Church of Universalist something, and it was, it was just listening to a clip that someone on a podcast I listened to, and it was awful. It was, it was spiritually vomit-inducing to hear this woman talk, just talking about how she was like, oh, all my, my you know, LGBTQ friends, you know, you know, we, we just want you to know you're made just the way you are. God, God wants you to be this way. And, he, and, and they're going off and saying, and, and Jesus, you know, his, his not coming back. There's not going to be a real second coming. And I'm listening to this person. I'm going, you are blaspheming. This is horrible. And this is a person who claims to be a minister of God. This is a minister of Satan saying these things. A minister of the devil. Jesus is coming back. And God does love LGBTQIA plus whatever people, but he wants them to change. Just like he loves me, but he wants me to change. We need to make sure we're teaching as accurately as we possibly can. We have a lot of guidelines that are laid out in the New Testament that we need to be abiding by. You know, whether, whether, whether you think it's, it's baptism for repentance you know, or, or baptism for the forgiveness of sins, you know, both of which Peter refers to in Acts chapter 2 and 3 respectively. Remember, he says, he says in Acts 2, he talks about baptism into the repentance of sins. In chapter 3, he talks about repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There's, there's a, you know, whether you say it's, it's one of these or the other or whatever, or whether you think it's both, you need to be repenting. That's the point, okay? And you need to be baptized. That's the point. Instead of arguing about when something happens or whatever. And listen, whether you believe in God's sovereignty and election, as I do, or whether you think that, that people have the ability to choose God through provenient grace, you should still be sharing the gospel. We are not the frozen chosen, friends. We need to be telling people about Jesus. And just because you're saved by grace, that does not excuse sin and laziness. You need to be rejecting sin and you need to be performing good works. You need to teach God's way just as firmly as we teach doctrine. Because, guys, listen, orthodoxy without orthopraxy is empty. How does James say it? Faith without works is dead. So let's be sure to teach the way of God correctly. Okay, finally. This last part's going to go pretty quickly. So, you know, I know, I'm sorry. I've been dragging out a little bit, but this is important. Stick with me. When Apollos, it says, when he wished to cross over to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. I think this passage is a clear reminder of something we've discussed in the previous points, but it's, it's big picture here, okay? Simply put, we need each other. We need each other. Christians need each other, friends. No one is an island. We're not self-sufficient. 
I recently saw this, this, it's a meme, I know. You guys are probably like, another one? I saw this meme, and it showed a group of antelope in the background, and the foreground was a lone antelope being chased by a lion, and the caption was something like, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. And you're like, yep, if a person is saying, I don't need to be in church to be a Christian, guess who Satan's going after? I suppose it's possible to be a Christian in isolation for periods of time. Um, it happens in prison, in hostile nations. But I'll tell you this, it's not recommended. Bless you. It's not recommended, okay? And it, it's, it's not biblical to do that if you can avoid it. We are meant to live in community with one another. That's how God designed us, okay? We need it for at least three reasons. They all show up right here in this passage. Number one, to encourage one another. Apollos was encouraged by the brothers to do what he was already disposed to do, because this was after being taught God's way more accurately, right? It was to go preach in Achaia. And the word encourage literally means giving courage. He's apparently pretty bold already, right? But the other Christians felt, they felt like, like pushing him to follow that direction that he was led. And we need this from each other, friends. We need this. Even when we feel like we're being called to something, it helps to have other Christians you know, spurring us on toward love and good works, like the author of Hebrews wrote in chapter 10. Secondly, we are to welcome one another. Uh, as the Christians in Achaia were instructed to welcome Apollos. And this word, it, it doesn't mean just a greeting. It means to receive someone unto yourself. That's what welcoming is, biblically speaking. Okay? The mental picture is to approach someone with open arms. It's like a mi casa, su casa attitude, right? That is what we're talking about here. When we welcome one another in this regard, it provides great opportunities for us to serve as Christ intended us to do. And it makes the last verb that we're going to look at really pop out of this text, okay? As Christians, we must help each other. Apollos greatly helped those who, by God's grace, believed in Jesus, and he did so by using the Old Testament scriptures to show Jesus was the Christ. And even though he was refuting the non-believing Jews, his, his boldness and his faithfulness helped the disciples there. In fact, that's probably in part because he was bolstering their faith with his knowledge and his courage, but also because probably some of those Jews were converting, right? Or at least leaving the Christians alone rather than persecuting them because they couldn't win an argument. Either way, um, we, we see that these, these believers in Achaia were beneficial to Apollos, and he was beneficial to them. Christians are meant to benefit one another. So I got one last comment before we close, um, and it goes back to the previous paragraph. What Aquila and Priscilla did in simply talking with Apollos we get to see the fruit of that here. I mean, maybe they weren't as gifted as Apollos, but they were able to be what he needed in that moment in order to change his message to better serve the gospel. And that's my final point, friends. Background folks can change the world. What a perfect thing that we had the, the people stand up this morning. Background people do the things that make it possible for foreground people to do the things that they do. Each one matters. And friends, especially you married couples, you never know, you never know who you're going to influence. You know, somebody, somebody sat down Billy Graham to disciple him, right? 
Somebody sat down, John MacArthur and John Piper and J.I. Packer and Tozer and Washer and Luther and Calvin and Augustine, they all had someone lead them in their relationship with Jesus, as did you, right? You had someone lead you in a relationship to Christ. So, who will you affect whether you're in the foreground or the background, how is the Lord using you to change the world? As Mark Worley said, there are no insignificant people in the kingdom of God. Is God using you to change the world? He will if you belong to him. Even if you don't think you can change the world, you know, like the saying goes, you may not change the world, but you can change the world for somebody. It means introducing people to Jesus. But hey, what if you've never believed on Jesus? What if you've never publicly professed your faith and been baptized? You can do that today. If you believe, profess him, be baptized. And if you've already done that, have you started on the journey? I mean, do you view that as the finish line? Because it's not. <laughs> That's the starting line. The gun just went off, right? It's time to go. We're all called to more.